I'm still anxious. That's so good because we're discussing a ghost story. And is there anything more anxious than a ghost? Like that's the kind of what their deal is. Are ghosts anxious or like depressed? Are they just are they just anxiety personified? No, I am. The ghosts in this story don't seem depressed. I thought ghosts were just angry. Is this a ghost story or is it a time travel tale? Yes. It's both. Or is he the ghost? Are we the ghosts? Were we dead already? I don't really want to interpretate 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 <laughs> I have a fever just gonna just yeah. gonna put that out there I don't want to I don't you get fever you got a fever it's the fever all over fever I was gonna say you give me fever but then that'd be weird I'm your dad <laughs> uh, you give me a fever if I'm in the same room as you and you're contagious I don't you even I'm not even fever. technically sick no no I know I'm just having vaccine symptoms. So you said you don't want to interpret this story in any way? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a bad idea, though. It's an allegory. (laughs) I don't want to think about this story anymore. I loved this story. It made me cry. I was in the backyard reading it out in the the outdoors, and I was, like, getting all, like, choked up at the end. Are you sure you weren't crying because you were outside? I was not crying. I was watching. I I I have been taking pictures of bumblebees. That's been my new thing. I've been following the bumblebees around the garden and taking pictures of them. So that's that's the new dad, the new Phil, bee taker. Six months really does a lot, huh? Uh-huh. I'm the bee man. Call me the bee, Mr. Bee. No. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I was reading the story and I got all choked up. I was prepared to not like it, but then I could because of like, because Russell Kirk is known as like a conservative philosopher, but sh- we should probably... We should probably get going on this. On this, we should probably do the intro. Okay, well, I'm Phil and I'm Willow, and it's Del Toro time. It's Del Toro time. You have been listening to 1915's There's a Long, Long Trail by James Reed and James F. Harrison, published on Victor Records. Uh, The original record cost 75 cents. Uh, Yeah, that's that's the, uh, the There's a Long, Long Trail. That is the song that the protagonist of our story finds himself singing. You know, at first, I didn't even think they were singing in English. Oh, because they were like, yeah, at part of it, it sounded like he said I was a growing ravioli that I was very confused. (laughs) There's a long, long trail of winding into the land of my dreams where the nightingales are singing and the white moon beams. There's a long, long night of waiting until my dreams come true till the day when I'll be going down that long, long trail with you. Long line trail of winding. By the way, this is the, uh, we are, this is well, welcome to It's Del Toro time. And uh, we are now, of course, in the midst of our The Dark Descent, David G. Hartwell's collection of horror stories. Uh, we are in the first third of the book, The Color of Evil. And this week's story is what? A long trail. <laughs> <laughs> There's a long, long trail, a winding by Russell Kirk.
Russell Kirk, interesting figure, interesting figure in the history of, of letters and of America. And you had said in the last episode when we were talking about this, you were like, I don't want to know a thing one about this guy. Yeah, I don't. Because because uh, he's a conservative uh, horror writer. It's not that he's a conservative horror writer. I know plenty about a lot of conservative horror writers. <laughs> in fact, it seems to be a theme that a lot of horror writers seem to be somewhat conservative. And that's fine. Yeah. Just the way you described him made me not want to know anything about him. Well, he was an advisor to like Ronald Reagan, who's like one of the worst people in history. So he was a conservative thinker, which you don't see much of anymore. <laughs> That's like an oxymoron in this day and age. Like this sort of rejection of, of intellectualism is kind of the, the thing on the right. But back in the day, like conservative philosophy was like a really big deal. And like pe- conservative philosophers would go on the talk shows and talk about their their things. And it's funny because I, so I read a, like not a bunch, but a few of his essays and, and ideas. And I have to say that I fundamentally disagree with this guy <laughs> on like almost everything and and you said you just said that uh, a lot of horror writers are conservative yeah yeah he says that horror is is at its heart a conservative genre Mm -hmm. you know like fantasy in itself like what we think of as modern fantasy like tolkien-esque fantasy is of course very conservative because tolkien was like let's go back to a better time before this modern age those were the better days Mm -hmm. and i think so much of early fantasy is that like it was better in the past. And that's like part of the crux of conservative thinking when it comes to ghost stories, especially like that's the whole, like the ghosts know better. Like the past, the past knows best. We should, we should do what the past says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a lot of what Russell Kirk is saying in a lot of his stories. I also just think conservatives are scared of more things. I, I will say that uh, he, yeah, he has an essay. They actually mention it in, in uh, the dark descent. He says that he wrote, it's funny, they mentioned, they say, uh, 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 David Hartwell says, his approach is set forth in an essay appendix to his first collection, The Surly Sullen Bell from 1962, uh, a cautionary note on the ghostly tale. But then it doesn't say like what that says. It doesn't even go into it. It just mentioned that he mentions that he does that, his approach is set forth. And he says, Russell Kirk basically lays out in that essay that you can't write a ghost story unless you believe in ghosts mm-hmm. you cannot you can't be a good horror writer unless you believe in the horrors in which you're writing which i absolutely disagree with mm-hmm. but he that's his that's his argument that he also says that science fiction is a fool's game that there's never been a good science fiction story he thinks that these modern thinkers gave up religion and they hooked into science fiction which is exactly the same and that it's all poppycock and nonsense and that aliens are just ghosts um, ghost aliens well that's even worse <laughs> they came from a planet to haunt dark closets he sounds like a real treat he was an admirer of sheridan le fanu mr james oliver onions uh h russell h russell wakefield uh t.s Eliot. he's a good friend with t.s friends with uh t.s Eliot. robert aikman uh madeline langle liked him ray bradbury liked him uh he you know he he was an, an appreciated author in his day. Mm-hmm. He considered his horror stories to be allegory, religious, and I would say that that fits in very well in this haunted little tale. There's a long, long trail, a winding. Okay, but clearly the past doesn't know best. What do you mean? Just look at the Salem witch trials. <laughs> look at any main event that happened in the past and tell me that the people of the past know best. 
remember too though that like a lot of the conservative thought is that the people who were the oppressors in the past were the good guys and so yeah the past was doing pretty well for itself until all these like women and minorities started opening their yaps that's kind of very true that's so so yeah don't forget who the good guys are in certain people's narratives and it'll make a lot more sense but there's a long long trail a winding this is a uh this is a it's a, it's a strange little... T- it, it did not go in a direction I was thinking it was going to go. We've got this guy. Uh, we start off... Uh, it's just a guy. He's like this huge bear of a man. I think they call him like a Viking of a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's caught He's caught in a snowstorm. And he finds... like He's on the side of a highway. And he finds a little town that he thinks might be inhabited. But he's just looking to get shelter from this storm. It's a terrible, terrible snowstorm. And... Uh, and so he finds this little town. It's it's completely abandoned. It, it ends up being a ghost town, even though the church bell is ringing from the wind. And he finds, but he finds a mansion mm-hmm. called Tamarack House that is in pretty good condition. Oh, the town is called Anthonyville. It's in pretty good condition. Um, and so he breaks in to the house, not because he wants to steal anything, just because he needs a place to stay, and kind of sets up like gets comfortable there and his name is frank sarsfield Mm -hmm. frank our our friend frank uh the the story itself is interesting because it's told in a series of like it isn't being told in a series of like flashbacks and letters that sort of fill you in on some of the plot details and fill you in on this guy's psychology but it's all very much in frank's head Mm -hmm. what's happening yeah so what did you think of this guy frank apple pie order what? Everything in this house lay in apple pie order. Yeah. He's a he's a simple thinker. That's fine. Yeah, but he's not he's not unintelligent. He is super well read. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's ex-con. He's been in prison quite a few times. He tries to live a life of peace. Uh, he only gets in scraps when he has to. He hasn't seen his sister in years. He just sort of goes from town to town looking for work, getting tired of being where he is. And pretending he is dumber than he is because he doesn't want people to know that he's actually a, a smart guy because then they start expecting too much of you. He's lazy. He considers himself lazy. He doesn't like to work, but he'll do it when he has to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so he finds his house. And what is this house like? Dark and empty, but an apple but, pie order. But it is an apple pie order. There's there's food mm-hmm. and candles. All the rooms are labeled with like brass nameplates, including one up top called Frank's Room. Huh. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's actually like a it's a, it's an interesting story because he's such a I find this guy just such a fascinating character. He just he wants to be left alone, but he's got a very strong philosophy, and he is convinced. And this is kind of the 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 hook of the story. He is convinced that he is damned. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very Catholic, and he thinks there's no chance he's ever going to go to heaven because he's done too many bad things in his life. And a priest once told him that it's possible. That if you do one like really, really majorly good thing, that might be enough to tip the scales and get you into heaven. But he doesn't think that that's a possibility. He doesn't think that there's any chance that he'll ever be able to do one really, really good thing. So what else do we know about Frank? Well, he's never confessed. To what? He's never confessed. He said, it says here, but he seldom seldom went to mass and never to confession. He's So he finds out, so this house used to be inhabited by a family. Uh, there were three little girls, a mother and a father, and the general. 
who was the like 80 year old head of the household mm -hmm. and he sees pictures of them in the house and he kind of falls for this little girl named Allegra, not in a weird way, but he's only ever been able to relate to children. He sees something in her that reminds her that reminds him of like his little, his sister. He sort of like fixates on this little girl and just was like, I'll, I would protect her. I would, she's, she's the best. I, I think she's great. She, she, she comes across as charming with raw, long ringlets and kind eyes and a delicate mouth that curved upward at the corner. He, he's uncomfortable with adults and other humans, but little kids, especially little girls, he's just comfortable with. Again, not in a weird way, not in a scary way, just that's that's what he's comfortable with. He's just kind of, he's. I, I wouldn't even say he's a child himself. I would just say that he just doesn't trust people. I trust children the least. <laughs> Why? What do they do? What do they do to you? They have no empathy. No empathy? No. They're all little psychopaths. They have to learn that empathy. They have to develop that part of their brain. But I would think Frank has seen far worse in adults than he has seen in children. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm sure that he has, yeah, but God, kids yeah. scare me. He spent like years in prison. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like there's guys in prison who are just like pure evil. Like he understands like there's people who are in prison because like they've killed and done horrible things besides killing. And... He got through prison by being bigger than everyone else and by sort of keeping to himself so that the gangs would leave him alone. Uh, and a prison psychiatrist came in once and figured out that he was actually really smart and helped him get paroled. Because uh, he's like, this guy's going to keep committing crimes, but he's not dangerous. He just he commits crimes when he has to eat or whatever. So you can let him go. He'll commit a crime again, but he's not a problem to the community. And he's a lot smarter than you think he is. So that's how I, like that's why he would get paroled is because he would just sort of be cool and uh, and not 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 get in fights in prison unless he had to. Um, I always hated those rules. What rules? The prison rules? Now I'm mostly talking about school now, but like the the rules were like if you fight back, you also get punished. Uh huh. Or if you're even if you're attacked, you get punished. It's so stupid. Yes. Yes, school is not unlike prison. Like there's a, there's an aura at a lot of schools of keeping the keeping the kids at each other's throat so they don't turn on the adults in charge. High school was a long, long trail of winding. It sure was for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so we don't really know much about his past. He writes a letter to his sister at one point, a very long letter, mm -hmm. uh, like sort of apologizing profusely for borrowing money from her, never returning it, saying that he wants to return money, but every time he gets any, he just spends it, and that he's the, he's worthless, he's not worthy of her love, he wants to pay her back, he's sorry, he hasn't seen her in years. Uh, and I, I don't know, I get to, I get this feeling for this guy with just like no self-esteem, uh, no sense of place. Someone referred to, I believe one of the psychiatrists referred to him as a solipsist. Uh, are you familiar with what a solipsist is? Why on God's green earth would I be familiar with what that is? Solipsism is the idea that you personally are the only like real thing that exists in the world. Oh, actually, I have heard of this. <laughs> yeah, not psychopathy. Not that. Not that you're the only person who matters. But that you're, that you're literally the only provable thing in existence. Mm -hmm. And someone accused him of that. And he was like, I don't think I'm a solipsist because like there's, I know that certain people exist. And then he says something like, I don't know if things exist when I'm not looking at them, 
but I do know that they exist. <laughs> I'm like, you, sir, have quite an outlook. He's like, it makes me feel good to think that Father O'Malley exists. I like to think things exist even when I'm not looking at them. Yep, because you're not a baby or a cat. This Frank or a dog. <laughs> no, uh, but it's interesting that that's brought up in the first place. This notion that you're kind of this uh, consciousness out of space, out of time, like that you. If you're the only thing that really exists in the universe, that makes you kind of untethered to time and space, which kind of comes into play in the story. Like, can you exist if you can easily slip through time and space? He, he mentions to his sister that he did something terrible before he left, but he never really comes out and says what it is. Uh, it's just kind of this just sort of vague notion. Uh, but he finds uh, the bedroom of the little girl Allegra and finds a diary that, or a letter that she started writing to her great niece or her grandniece mm-hmm. uh, as an old woman. So this was, so obviously like the pictures in the house of the little girls are very old and it tells a story of, of their town and how the town's been dying, falling apart ever since they built the freeway, which he kind of figured out on his own. The main road used to run through the town, but then the freeway came and it kind of killed all their industry. And the the mines got mined out, so all the industry got guy left. But there was a there's a prison break at the local at the local prison, and a bunch of like just psychopaths get out and start like they're like the worst, like the worst guys. And how they broke into the house when she was a little girl, and and killed the 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 the, the grandfather who went out to, to try to fend them off because he used to like be in charge of the prison. And they came into the house and, and then the letter ends. But she does mention poor Frank. Mm-hmm. And our hero Frank, our, our protagonist Frank, is like, so wild there was a guy named Frank who lived here and that I'm staying in his room and that I have this kind of like affinity for this little girl but don't know why. And also, when I first entered this house, it kind of looked familiar but not really. Don't know what that means. And like... But you sort of start getting the sense that, like, there might be something weird going on. Like, was this the same guy? Was mm-hmm. there, like, a weird, like, like, is he, how old is this guy? Like, is he already dead? Like, what's going on? And then he goes, and he, he kind of sees out of the corner of his eyes at times things moving in the house. Mm-hmm. But they don't really freak him out. Uh, but he knows they're there. Until at one point, he does see the ghosts of the three little girls who approach him. Mm-hmm. And are kind of like they're, they have a game they play. What's the game? Creep mouse. It's really, it's really creepy. Creep How mouse. How does that go? Down, down, down in Creep Mouse Town, all the lamps are low, and the little rodent feet softly come and go. There's a rat in Creep Mouse Town and a bat or two. Everything in Creep Mouse Town would swiftly frighten you. That's the worst. Creep mouse. It's all one word too. Creep mouse is a terrible thing to to come up with. But yeah, it's like a hide and seek kind of game. Uh, the, the sisters used to play creep mouse with Frank. We would be the creep mice and would sneak up and scare him when he wasn't watching. And he would pretend to be terrified. He made up a little song for us or he put some words to a tune he had borrowed. And that's, yeah, that's where the song comes from. So yeah, he sees the little girls at one point and they creep up on him. And it is a creepy little scene. It's not scary, scary, but it is a creepy scene. Like there's something going on in this house. But then he falls asleep in his bed. And what happened? Prison siren. Yes, the prison break is happening. Or a prison break is happening. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that the, the, the law is going to come his way. And he's, he gets all ready to flee the house. 
But then he hears screaming and then Allegra like bursts into his room and he's like, Mm -hmm. what the hell's going on? And what's going on is the prison break he had read about is actually happening now. Like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden he's back in time to when the prison break occurred. And the, the prisoners have killed the general and they've broken into the house and they're attacking the mother doing like, they don't say what they're doing, but it sounds not good. Mm-hmm. And they're attacking the little girls and Allegra comes to get him. And what does our Frank do? Goes down. And? Hits. Fights. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> he fights. With what? His hands. No. An axe? An axe. He gets an axe from one of the guys, uh, kills him with an well, axe. First, and then first just... he grabs the man by the throat. Yes, he does grab a man by the throat. Uh, he goes into what is called a berserker rage, which he has read about and vows he will never go into. He cannot go into a berserker rage. He's not that kind of guy. But then he lets himself because he has to protect the little girl. So, yeah, he lays waste to the, to the, to the, the criminals with an axe. They are left in bloody rags and tatters. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, we haven't mentioned that Frank is diabetic. He's 60 years old. He just tra- This is his birthday. He just turned 60. He's diabetic, and he has a terrible heart murmur that causes him a lot of pain. He's mm-hmm. always in pain from his heart murmur. And this, this physical exertion pretty much seems to be the end of him. Uh, he tries to make it back up. He makes it back upstairs. When he comes back down, though, uh, when he comes to, all the bodies are gone. The, the whole town was engulfed in snow during the fire, during the prison break, uh, which the, where the prison caught fire. The snow was all gone. Now it's all back. Everything is back the way it was. He somehow figures out, or he wonders if he actually did save the family. Mm-hmm. Like, was this actually Frank, the Frank we know going back and saving the family? And if so, was that what he calls a signal act? Was that what he could do? to absolve himself of his sins before the Lord, before his death. And he better hope so. Because he die. Because he dies. <laughs> and in the beginning of the story, when he first goes to the house, he reads this plate on the front of the house that's like, this is where the general lived until he died. Uh, Jerome Anthony, a brigadier general in the Corps of Engineers, died in 1915, January 14th, 1915. And there's another plaque that he doesn't dare look at. He doesn't know why, but he doesn't want to look at it. But at the end of the story, he manages to get outside. He finds the boulder where the plaque is, and he reads it. And, of course, it says, In loving memory of Frank, a spirit in prison made for eternity who saved us and died for us, January 14th, 1915. And through this whole story, this long, long trail of winding has been like kind of running through his head, this song is long trail of winding. And we don't really know at the end if he just dreamed all that or if he really did it, but... uh. But what do you think? Does it really matter in the end what really happened? He thinks it happened, and that's what should be what matters. I don't know if he thinks it happened, though. He hopes it happened. He hopes it was a good enough task, at least. A good enough deed. I think this is a really well-written story. Uh-huh. I just don't care. You don't care? I guess I just don't really relate to this character on enough of a level to really Oh, my God. He's like, he's pretty much you. <laughs> what do you mean? 60-year-old Viking ex-con has to hold in his berserker rages. Wow, that's uh, a, that's, that's, that's a, wow, you're that's right. A, it's like looking I, in a mirror. Yep. Uh, walks, walks a lonely road, hopes to get into heaven. Yep, just like me. How could I not see the similarities there? 
Hasn't spoken to his family in eight years. <laughs> you know, I always said that Willow, real Frank Sarsfield, that one, real, 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 real trailwinder, real Russell R- Russell Kirk kid. Don't ever call me that. <laughs> real conservative philosopher. I thought this was more like like he was more of a you character. A me character? Yeah. Because he's just always sad and, and is worried about dying. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I, honestly, I think that there is an element of that in why this story moves me. I have a, I have a, if you really want, there's certain, there are certain tropes and certain types of stories that'll always like trigger my cry button and, uh, or push my cry button, trigger my, my cry toggle switch or my cry bullet gun. As opposed to? Soldering gun or a. Uh, water gun. Water gun. Um, there are certain tropes that always do it. And one of those tropes is the the notion of somebody dying and just hoping, hoping, hoping that they did good in this world. Like always just like sort of like gets me. Like it's like a, it's a, it's just a thing. And I think it is. I think you're right when you said your father is a man who just lies in bed at night, terrified of dying, uh, which is exactly what you just said. <laughs> yeah, it's word for word, definitely. That's the only... When you die and I'm a famous author, that's how I'm going to describe you. Well, don't become a famous author for another like 40 years, please. <laughs> so that Why? I can be. Because I don't want you to become, because as soon as you become a famous author, I'm going to die. No, no, no. I'm just not going to mention you until you die. <laughs> oh, I see. No, I think that that's, I think it's a big trigger for me is, is the notion of, of, did I do good? Did I do good? And when I was reading this, I guess I just got really choked up. Also, like a person heroically saving a family. That's just, it's very Conan the Barbarian. Very like, ah, he goes into a berserker rage and slays everyone. But it's altruistic. It's mm-hmm. it's not, he's not doing it for gold or, or, or fame or fortune. He's doing it because he wants to save a family, a bunch of little girls and a woman. Uh, the father's around, but he never gets mentioned, I don't think. Um, but uh yeah, it just, it really, it really hit me. And I was like, oh, right, right. Like, this is a very conservative story. It's very much about, like, God and going to heaven and uh, the past being the past. And it's a conservative writer. But then I'm like, yeah, like, so much of the horror that has stuck with me has been from these authors who I don't necessarily agree with most of their outlook on life. <laughs> But they could spin a good yarn using that outlook as kind of like the the foundation of their horror. Maybe it's just me, but maybe some sometimes I think maybe they should be like, you know, this this outlook I have on life really makes some good horror stories. Uh-huh. Maybe I should do something about that. Oh, <laughs> man! Whenever I put pen to paper, all the all the ghoulishness of the world pours out. I wonder if that has anything to do with this. Maybe I mean, there's also very good liberal horror writers. Yeah, no, I know. But I would also say that, like, even, like, when you look at, like, older, liber- like, quote-unquote liberal horror, it's like your Stephen Kings. Like, even their horror is 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 layered with conservative thought. It's still very conservative in its outlook mm-hmm. on good and evil, in its outlook on the, ne- the need to unearth the past, the dangers of, of ex- exploration, the dangers of learning too much. I mean, that's what people always crit- criticize hp lovecraft hang on to your seats ladies and gentlemen with hp lovecraft and mr james with like don't don't delve too deep into these mysteries because only bad things will happen and that's kind of a very conservative thought the notion that trying to learn too much about the world is a bad thing but but i think that that's but that like don't delve too deep into the unknown is like a is is one of the backbones of of popular horror and Mm -hmm. that 
I think more than a few open-minded authors and more liberal-leaning authors still rely on for their horror. I still believe is, in that. Don't don't learn too much? No, don't dive too deep into the unknown because you're never going to be able to you can't put the cat back in the bag. Mm-hmm. If you if if I'm all I'm one of those people who like if I hear a local legend about a ghost woman at a lake, yeah, I don't really believe in ghosts. But I'm not going to the lake. <laughs> Yeah, that like I don't believe that there's demons haunting that building over there, but I'm still not going in. Yeah, you're not going to say Bloody Mary in the mirror three or four times? No, I've never done that, and I never will. Just because I don't necessarily believe in something doesn't mean it doesn't pay to be cautious. When I was a kid, they used to play Bloody Mary, and I don't know what legend you grew up with with Bloody Mary, but with me it was always, if you say Bloody Mary three or five times, one of the two, in the bathroom mirror in the dark, when you turn on the light, like Bloody Mary will kill you. Like She'll come out and kill you. And the people are like, you want to play Bloody Mary? And I'm like, no, like <laughs> what? There's a net. There's no net benefit to this. Like if I'm, if you're right, you're going to be murdered by a ghost. <laughs> and if you're wrong, I mean, if you're wrong, you just you don't gain anything. You're just like you just stood in a black bathroom, like scaring yourself for a few minutes. But why would you want <laughs> Bloody Mary to come out? Like if it was like if you stand in the bathroom and say Bloody Mary five times. Then you turn on the light, like Bloody Mary will give you $5. Then I can be like, all right, I'll try it. There's a 50-50 chance she either kills you or she gives you $5. No, there's a 50-50 chance she does nothing or gives you $5. That way, like, that way, like, you will look like a fool for doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, here comes, here comes the cash. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. And then she doesn't show up. And then your friend's going to be like, ha ha, you thought Bloody Mary was going to give you $5. But if you do it and Bloody Mary doesn't come and kill you, you can't ha ha that person. You can be like, good, I'm glad you, my friend, did not get murdered by a murder ghost. <laughs> like, I think that that's like, it's a weird legend. Uh, there are a lot of things that people do that I'm like, but there's no, you're not going to get any, you're just risking death. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, I guess that's, like, those people who, like, do, like, GoPros of them, like, biking down really narrow, like, ledges and stuff. As long as they're wearing helmets, I don't care. I mean, they could still fall, like, 50 feet and don't die care. on the ground. Don't care. That's their problem. <laughs> that's their problem. You st- he stood in the mirror. He called Bloody Mary. He knew what he was getting into. That's your philosophy. Yeah. Hey! If you, hey. Get mur- if you get murdered by a ghost after using a Ouija board or doing an urban legend stupid ritual, then, yeah, that's your fault. That's on you. I have no... I feel no sympathy towards you. I want to make you a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> it's a long read, but if you get murdered by a ghost, I have no sympathy for you. Willow. I don't. I just think that if you're going to... That's that's. I also don't have any sympathy for people who knowingly do dangerously stupid stuff without taking proper safety precautions. I have sympathy for people who do that, mostly because I understand that the brain sometimes convinces you that things aren't as dangerous as they are. Or that when you're younger, that there is a level of... I know you've never considered yourself invincible. That's something you've never, like, necessarily had a problem with. You've never been like, I'm never going to die. Like, I've never worried about you being like, that willow just always running off and doing crazy stunts come hell or high water. You've worried, my child hasn't left the house in six days, and I don't know why. That was literally... I don't know if I ever told you this. I I used to, like, worry about you and tell my friends, I just wish... She would try to sneak out of the house one night or I would catch her doing drugs or drinking or something. I just wanted to go out and have fun. <laughs> uh, it's sad because it's true. <laughs> you never did. But you know who did? 
Frank Sarsfield. And he ended up dead, but he did save a bunch of little girls back in time. Maybe. See, I like to think that I would save a family if I had the opportunity. <laughs> I think I would save my family if if someone broke in and I and I had an axe. I think I could do that. I'm just imagining I'm just imagining someone breaking into our house and like us me alana and mitzi like just like freaking out because we don't have anything to do and just seeing like sneak out the door just giving us a wave like bye bye <laughs> the axe is in the garage <laughs> yeah i'm probably a big old wimp i probably would not go all frank Sarsfield. i don't know i think the parental instinct is there when well, frank's instinct was there and I really liked this. This is a story. There's a long, long trail of winding. It's a, it's a story. I've never heard of this story outside of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but Russell Kirk wrote it. It was at the end of his career. And he won the uh, he won the World Fantasy Award for Best Short Fiction that year for mm-hmm. it. Like, it's a really, it's a really well-respected horror story that I just was completely off my radar. And if you want to hear him reading it, just go on YouTube, search this story, and you'll find like an hour and a half long read. It's very hard to hear. It's an <laughs> old recording from like 1977. But uh, like someone on Real to Real like had it in their room and it's from like far away. But it's fascinating to hear an author read their own work, uh, especially someone as like sort of affable as as he is. But uh, but uh, uh, David G. Hartwell says that Kirk's body of work in this mode, the allegorical mode, makes him the C.S. Lewis of the supernatural, which I get like very religious. And his stories are meant to like sort of teach you and like sort of like guide you through faith and guide you through doubt and stuff. So uh, I recommend it. I recommend taking a look at it. Maybe I'll get it when I'm older. When you're old and 60 and a Viking like me, like your old man. Old man. No. (laughs) Hey, Willow. Yeah? What is our next story in The Dark Descent? I can't tell you. Why not? Because I can't pronounce the name. Is it because you can't pronounce the name of the author? No. Is it because you can't pronounce the name of the being? Yeah. I'm also not allowed to say it without inadvertently destroying my life. (laughs) (laughs) That is right. Next week, we will begin our coverage. And I think it's going to be more than one episode because it's a a novella, basically. Uh, we are going to begin our coverage of the oh, speaking of like speaking of the author's philosophies color the color cover their own fiction, but you can't you can't get you cannot discuss the fiction without discussing the author's own prejudices. And oh boy, does this author have so many of them? But we're not going to dwell only on them because there's more there's more to the story than just the author's weirdness and his hatefulness mm-hmm. and his horridness. And I will say, go on record, he's not the most horrible writer who's ever existed. There's been some worse. Worst ones that have, have crawled out of the woodwork recently. Have you seen the name of his cat? I have seen the name of his cat. But I will say that as a man who held very little power in his life and never attempted to hold power, at least he didn't like try to change anything. There are there are writers with much with with extremely toxic viewpoints who have made it their lives mission to make other people's lives as miserable as possible. And I actually hold them to a much in a much worse place than I hold a man who just wrote terrible, terrible things to his friends and sometimes in his fiction and gave his cat a terrible name. And I mean, at least he was only drowning himself in his misery and wasn't trying to drag everyone else down with him. He was, he was, he was drowning in his own misery. Of course, the man himself, the misery man himself, the man who died of stomach cancer because he wouldn't go to the doctor and would only eat like one tin of peas a day because he couldn't afford to eat. Does that cause stomach cancer? 
Yeah, like diet can be directly tied into like into cancers. So I'll never take, eat peas again. He didn't take care of himself. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. And the story, the call of, we're just going to say Cthulhu because I'm not going to try to pronounce it correctly. I'd say Cthulhu. Yeah, Cthulhu, Cthulhu. <laughs> Lovecraft himself said when someone asked, he, he answered the question, how do you pronounce this name several times in his letters and gave like detailed descriptions. And the answer is basically, you can't. This is a name uttered by an unknowable being with no like mouth or throat parts. Uh, the closest you can come to it is like <laughs> something like that. So he's just, he was basically just like, go nuts. You can't say it anyway. Whatever, dude. <laughs> Except he said it politely. Did he? Anyway, we'll discuss H.P. Lovecraft in our next episode, The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for putting up with us in the dark descent. Uh, buy yourself a copy and read this story. I liked it. So join us next time, ladies and gentlemen, for the beginning of The Call of Cthulhu. If you have thoughts about any of these stories, drop us a line on Twitter, at uh, Del Toro Time. We would love to hear from you. Just, you know, if you want to, we'd love to know what you think. If you've let or read a long, long trail, there's a long trail winding, let us know what you think. I think it's a cool story. And we'd love to continue the conversation. I thought the story was well written, and that's it. And that's it. But I believe it has a good place in the pantheon. Yeah, of I think that horror. it was a good story. I don't. Fi- I didn't find it all that scary. No, no. Or mostly sad. Yeah, I've we've read a lot of sad stories so far. Yes, we've read four stories so far. Two of them are just sad. One had terrible spider head babies. Yeah, that one was creepy. And then one had the new mother, which was creepy in its own right. I just thought it was sad. But it was still, you said it had it dreadful, it had dread. Yeah, I, there was, there were some moments. But it wasn't even well, about, the, the new mother didn't scare me. It was the other stuff that scared me. Well, we will begin next week with The Call of Cthulhu, part one, The Horror in Clay. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for being delightful listeners. And I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you next time when... What? You've never said that before, ever. (laughs) I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you when... It's Del Toro time. Goodbye.